Romans chapter 1. You'll remember in this introduction in Romans chapter 1, we're using it as somewhat of an outline uh, to talk about the person of Christ. Not so much of what Paul will go into in the rest of this letter, and that is the work of Christ, but we're focused on the person of Christ, and this, of course, is our Advent series of messages where we are interested in the person of Christ at Christmas time, because when we sing about and read about the birth of this baby Jesus, there is no question about what He has done at this point, because He's done nothing at this point but be born and be a human baby. The question at this point of the story and of the gospel is who He is. Who is this Jesus? And we are using this, these first few verses as our outline to demonstrate, along with other scriptures, that Jesus is God and Jesus is King and Jesus is Lord. Now, let's read, beginning in verse 1, we'll just read through verse 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's just pause and ask God's blessing now on his word preached. Father, now help us as we open your word in this particular way that it will be read and expounded upon, taught and proclaimed. And I'm asking that the word would go forth with power in a demonstration of the Spirit and power and in fruitfulness for your people, that everyone here would see the truthfulness of your Scriptures, especially as it relates to the person of Jesus. We know we need eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to really comprehend and embrace by faith your truth. So I pray for that now. In the name of Jesus, amen. Jesus is God, Jesus is King, and Jesus is Lord. And you remember I began last week, as I'll begin this week, one of the main applications that come from the person of Christ is that He has all authority in heaven and on earth, which means that because Jesus is God and Jesus is King and Jesus is Lord, he, therefore, becomes our, both our priority of life, the one for whom we live every day, but also He becomes the authority in our life. That is, in every area and avenue of our life, both public and private, external things we do and internal things we think and meditate on every day of our week, all is under the authority the deity, the kingship, and the lordship of Jesus Christ. So this study and the thinking through who Jesus is affects everything you do, say, think, and feel. All to be under the person of 
Jesus. He is God, He is King, and He is Lord. And what we find every day is that to acknowledge, honor, and worship, and obey Jesus as God and King and Lord is a struggle, isn't it? And that is because this world in its current system, in its current beliefs and influences from the devil himself, is directly opposed to who Jesus is, and it's directly opposed to the authority and supremacy of Jesus Christ. So as you're living in a world that is going one direction, the, 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 the current of the world is going against the authority of Jesus, you as an individual are trying to go against that current in that Jesus is this the authority over all and over all of your life. It is a challenge. And it is a daily um, habit that we must have that we determine and we decide that over that day, over that hour, over that relationship, over that conversation, over that workplace environment, Jesus is going to reign in my life. In and through me, Jesus Christ will reign. It is going to be a struggle over every avenue of your life, not to mention the fact that you have indwelling in you that principle of sin that resists, actively resists the authority and the deity of Jesus Christ in your life. And that's why God has given us the Holy Spirit and has told us, frankly, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And we overcome this by faith in Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, the struggle is there. There is victory for it, and we must be in the fight, so to speak, battling to give our lives in our entirety to Jesus Christ. Now, we have determined over the last couple of weeks that Jesus is God, and as I mentioned earlier in our scripture reading time, we demonstrated that pretty clearly from the New Testament. You can deny that Jesus is God, but you cannot deny that the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. So you in and of yourself and your own will and thoughts and response to who Jesus is, you you know, can say, I don't believe He's God, therefore I'm not going to believe in Him or submit to Him as God. But what you cannot deny is that the Scriptures teach that Jesus is God and teach it very plainly and clearly. He is God. But, and what I want to emphasize this week is this point. He is God, but He is God incarnate. That means that He is God in flesh that He is both God and man simultaneously in this one person, Jesus. The word incarnate means to be invested with flesh or bodily nature and form, especially with human nature and form. And that's what we mean when we say, and what we're really celebrating with joy, and we're proclaiming at Christmas time, is that God is has become incarnate, that He assumed unto Him His divine nature, this human nature, 
this humanity in the truest sense of how we would say humanity, that Jesus is both God and man. Now, this is profound, is it not? If you really think about it, the fact that, the, that God became man is a profound statement to which other religions of the world, in the sense that we mean God became man, would reject it. They would say this cannot be true. But we uphold the Word of God and we say that it is true. And what I want to analyze this morning are three primary points in this. Okay? The first is the process. That means we're going to answer this question, how? How did God become man? The second we'll look at is the purpose. That is, why did God become man? And then thirdly, we'll look at a pattern in God becoming man, and then we're going to ask the question of ourselves, now what do I do in response to this? What should my life be like since God became man? Okay, so the process, the purpose, and the pattern. Would you look once again here at Romans 1, and he's talking about in verse 1, the gospel of God. This is what he proclaimed, what he had been set apart for. Verse 2, this gospel which God promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures. Notice this next phrase now, concerning his son. That's what we've been defining. What does he mean there? Son of God, eternal son of God, creator of all that there is. Okay, author and giver of all life. That's what we're talking about. The son equal with the father, equal with the spirit in all ways, bearing the essence of God himself. This son was descended or who was descended from David according to the flesh. And in that statement concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, we have the doctrine of the incarnation of God. Once we establish the fact that the son to the apostle Paul meant in that triune Godhead, Father and Son and Spirit, God Himself, once you establish that Paul meant that, and we establish that He meant that, the Son then was descended from David according to the flesh. That is the incarnation. Now, we've used this opportunity over this, these weeks in talking about who Jesus is and in talking about the sonship of Jesus, and we use that as an opportunity, as we should, to talk about God's nature, that He is one God in three co-equal, co-eternal, co-glorious, co-worshipped uh, persons, Father, Son, and, and Spirit. But now notice this in these verses that it says it is the gospel, and then in verse 3, concerning his son. So we're talking about the son of God who was descended from David according to the flesh. In other words, the gospel doesn't teach that God the Father was descended according to the Spirit, or according to the flesh, nor does it teach that God the Spirit was descended from David according to the flesh. It teaches, friends, that the Son specifically and uniquely was the one person in the triune Godhead who himself 
became a man. The Son of God became Jesus. Not the Father, nor the Spirit, but the Son. This shows us both the Trinity itself and that the gospel is, in essence, Trinitarian, but also the importance here of the distinctions. In the gospel, God didn't have to reveal it in this way and to show us what was happening. He could have just said, God became flesh, and that's true enough, isn't it? But He doesn't. He specifies His Son. It was the eternal second person of the Trinity, the God, the Son, who uniquely and specifically was descended at a point of time in that place there in Bethlehem and born of His mother Mary. It was the Son who became Jesus for us. And this is important at least for this reason. Again, when you're talking about the gospel or you're talking to somebody about the gospel, you're really talking, yes, about the gospel of God generally, but it's the gospel of His Son specifically. Which means, again, and I'll reiterate this, we've talked about this before, when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you need to get to Jesus. And oftentimes, when you're discussing the gospel with people, they're going to come up with all sorts of objections. They're going to come up with things like, yeah, well, but the Bible was written by humans and there's errors in it. Or, you know, uh, if God is good, why did he uh, command Israel to you know, kill entire nations, or if God is good, why is there suffering, or how does this, uh, this account of creation and stuff relate to uh, what we learn in our science classes at, in, in university and such. They're going to come up with all these different distracting issues, and they're trying to bait you into that distraction. What I would do, maybe give a brief answer to some of those, but then beeline right back to Jesus. Because the essential feature of the gospel, friends, is this. What decision do you make about Jesus? Because the Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God who became man and lived for us and died for sinners and rose again the third day and that He's coming again to judge the living and the dead and the only way into eternal life is to trust in Him. Let's get into the real crux of the issue here. You need to make a determination about Jesus Christ. It's what it's about. You'll notice down in verse 16 of chapter 1, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So as you're sharing the gospel concerning His Son, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, God will use that to bring people to saving faith. We are the ones who remember as Christians, we're proclaiming Christ. We're centering on Him. We know it is His name, who He is and what He did that we must hold up to people. But now we confess then that Paul is teaching that the Son of God was descended from David according to the flesh. That is, 
the Son of God became Jesus. Now, this question is what I want to ask, and here's our first point under the process. How did the Son of God become a man? How did the Son of God become Jesus of Nazareth? How did the creator of the universe become a man? Now, from the onset, let's just say this. There is much mystery in this, isn't there? It is a very mysterious doctrine that we uphold. That this eternal son was descended from the sperma of David the very seed of David? That's mysterious and that's profound. So how do we answer the question? How did this happen? How did the Son become Jesus? Well, to answer that question, I'm going to put up on the screen something that Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4 in verse 4. I'm just going to put up a portion of that. Notice a statement and let's keep it up here for a few minutes and I'm going to analyze it. Paul said that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Notice first that statement, when the fullness of time had come. That cues us in on something important. When you're thinking about Bethlehem, as an example, and you're thinking about the nativity scene, and you're thinking about the birth of Christ and all that we read this morning, everything that goes into it, understand that that was happening at a particular set appointed time by God. There was no accident no coincidence in this. It wasn't that there was just this man, Jesus, and then all of a sudden, right, he becomes the Son of God in some way. It isn't as though this is just uh, some random time period in place. This was all in the purpose and plan of God. He had worked everything out. I want you to think about this. God had been working everything together to bring about the fullness of that particular time period from Adam and Eve, and specifically their fall, all the way through what you read about in the Old Testament, all through not just Israel's history, but world history in every family and tribe and clan all over the globe, all things physical, human, and spiritual, and their beings working it, providentially guiding every millisecond of time to where God says, now is the fullness of time. Go forth, my son, you see. God is at all times working according to his plan behind the scenes. And in the daily occurrences of world history, as he always has been, he had prepared that people Israel and that place in just such a way that it was the fullness of time now, the sun goes forth. You to think about this, those of you who have joined us in our study of Ezra, isn't that one thing that we learned? That what Ezra is about, almost primarily is that God is bringing His people out of captivity in Babylon. He is bringing them back to that land in Jerusalem to rebuild that temple and put the wall around Jerusalem, bringing His people in so that the time is, would be right for 
Jesus to arrive, you had to have the temple, you had to have Jerusalem, you had to have the people of God, you had to have the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you had to have the people of God descending into Jerusalem every Passover. All of what you read about in those gospel stories, God had orchestrated in such a way to bring it in to the fullness of time Then He sent forth His Son. And friends, this becomes significant because there is another fullness of time coming. God is right this second, working everything in time to bring it to the chin in the fullness of time when once again He will send forth His Son, this time to judge and to execute judgment, and to deliver His people, and to establish His kingdom on earth. He's working it out because He knows what millennium it will be in, what century it will be in, what year, what month, what week, what day, what hour, what minute, what second, when He will say, fullness of time, go forth my Son. Are you prepared for that second sending forth of His Son? It's an imminent thing, meaning it could happen at any time. Bible's clear on that. It's also clear that no one knows when it will happen. <laughs> and it's also clear that Jesus taught His disciples, you need to be ready for it to happen because there will be those who are taken by surprise. Are you ready for the re-entry of the incarnate Son of God into our world? Well, then again, put up Galatians 4.4 with that next phrase. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman. And here's where I wanted to get to. In one sense, when we say that, or we're answering the question, how did God, the Son of God become a man. In one sense, we would say in a very natural, ordinary way. Really, nothing extraordinary about it. He was born, like all the rest of us, of a woman, or as Paul said, he was descended from David. He was born into this world. He wasn't transported into the world by some angelic stork carrying him in a blanket off of his beak and delivering him into Bethlehem. He was developed and cultivated in the womb like any other baby. There was a conception with Mary. It began with, uh, what do the scientists tell us, a zygote and and then a fetus and and a baby and all of those natural means. There would have been nothing extraordinary even about the birth and the way that she knew it was time and the birth pains come in and she delivers this baby. How did God become a man? Well, very naturally and ordinary from one perspective, right? But we know the rest of the story, don't we? Just as we read about earlier in Luke that there was something extraordinary 
there was something supernatural involved in the conception of Jesus. And for that, let's look at Matthew chapter 1. We read Luke's account earlier. And this is important, by the way, in answering who Jesus is to look at what we call the virgin conception and birth of Jesus. It's one of the core fundamental doctrines of the gospel because it teaches about who Jesus is and how God did this. Now look at verse 18 of chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now pause right there. We all know this, but let's remind ourselves of what Matthew's bringing out. That these two were just, Joseph and Mary, were just betrothed with, yes, which was a legal binding marriage contract in the nation of Israel at that time. Betrothal period was a, uh, an engagement type of period, but on steroids. For one year, they were legally married, but they could not live together. It's usually the time in which the husband would go out and prepare the place for uh, his bride to live in and and that kind of thing. And so during this time, they were not to come together as husband and wife in an intimate way. And it was during this period of time that Mary is found to be with child. And of course, this catches Joseph by surprise because he knows how it all works. And he's just assuming, well, this is a very natural conception, which means she committed adultery against me. And he had every right under Israel's law to make that known, to publicly shame her, maybe even appeal for her being put to death for adultery. So he determines to put her away quietly. Now notice this in verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is in her that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. On one hand, Jesus is conceived in the Virgin Mary, developed as a baby, born of a woman in a very natural way, but the conception itself, Scriptures teach, was supernatural. It comes from the Holy Spirit Himself. She will bear a son, you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins, all this took place to fulfill, listen, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. How is it that this person of Jesus that we know, this first century human being and man, can become both God and man? Well, this gives the answer, doesn't it? He receives from God by the Holy Spirit what we would say is His divine nature. That He is truly from God and truly is God. And at the same time receives from His mother His human nature. So that we would say God, Jesus is truly man. This conception is very important. It's how He can have both a human nature and a divine nature and how, friends, He could bypass, so to speak, the sinful nature we all inherit through the natural processes of 
conception and birth. Jesus is truly God and Jesus is truly man. And what we see on the pages of both Matthew 1 and also Luke 1 is how that could happen. That's why in Luke 1.35, as we read this earlier, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Did you catch that? Because of the conception by the Holy Spirit, the child to be born will be called holy. Listen, the Son of God. How is Jesus the Son of God? Through the supernatural conception of uh, Mary by the Holy Spirit. You'll notice one thing. Let me point out one more thing to you. Back in chapter 1 here of Matthew, and if you look at verse 16, this, of course, is the genealogy of Jesus. And it says in verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And it's interesting here, because that phrase, of whom Jesus was born, is attributed not to Joseph, his adoptive father, but it is a feminine pronoun in the underlying Greek, so it's attributed only to Mary. It's like Matthew, as he's writing, is being very careful with his terminology here and saying that you do not trace the biological origin of Jesus to his earthly father because that would not be the case. He is uniquely the Son of God and that she conceived by the Holy Spirit. So how did this happen? This happened through natural and supernatural processes. This happened both by ordinary and extraordinary means. But now let's go on to the next question. Why did this happen? Why did God send His Son? What was the purpose of the incarnation. And for this, I want to put back up Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 in their entirety, where Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was born of a woman, and He was born under the law. Now, Paul may be somewhat alluding to here to the Mosaic law because Jesus was under the Mosaic law when he was born. But we remember as we walk through the first chapters of Romans that there is also the law of God generally that is given to all human beings known in their conscience that they know it's wrong as an example to steal or murder or kill. That all human beings born into this world are born obligated and accountable to God to obey him. It was the same with Adam as God brought him into existence. Adam was under obligation to obey God. And God gave him one forbidding command of that one tree not to eat. And what did he do? He broke God's law. And as a consequence, the rest of human, being, uh, human beings uh, would all be those who would be born lawbreakers. But Jesus comes in, the Holy Son of God the perfect human being, the God-man, and he is born under law in every sense of the word, word, obligated to obey God in every way. And his life was characterized, Christian, by obedience to his Father. 
If there is one word that could summarize the actual life of Jesus, it would be obedience to God. Doing that, friends, for you and me. You see, Jesus lived the obedient life before God that you should have lived and should be living, but didn't and aren't. And He died the death the law commanded on that cross so that you don't have to die the death the law commanded. He was born to redeem us from the law's penalty and power, and that's exactly what He did. Again, back in Matthew one twenty one, we can put it on the screen. You, he shall bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why God became man. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners. So the Son of God became a man, Jesus, to save sinners like you and me. And now I want to move on to the third point and what will be the primary application for today. I want to examine the pattern of this incarnation and ask the question, what should we do in response? Or as Francis Schaeffer said, how then shall we live? In light of the fact that the Son of God became man for us, how then shall we live? And in order to do that, I want you to find Philippians chapter 2. And we will close with this passage. There's a pattern in Philippians chapter 2 that I want to draw your attention to. Beginning in verse 6. That's on page 1248, by the way, if you have one of our Bibles and are following along. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. And he's talking about Jesus here. Who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being in the likeness, born in the likeness of men, and being uh, found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him. Do you notice the pattern here? We start off with the one who in verse 6 was in the form of God. This is where Paul says in the gospel concerning his son, the son dwelling, living, existing in every way as the Father and the Spirit and all glory and worship and honor for all eternity past. In the form of God, in His essence and being, invisible manifestations of glory, you can read about in places like Isaiah chapter 6 where angels are singing His praises, the one who is seated on the throne. And yet this one, says Paul, then humbled himself He emptied himself. He didn't think equality with God a thing to be grasped, be held onto, to be used of his own advantage, but actually was born a human being. You see that? What we call the condescension. 
or what we might call the humiliation of the Son. When the Father sent forth the Son into this world, it was a condescension. The Creator becomes a part of His own creation. That's humiliation. That's the humbling, the condescension. And then it's after His obedience all the way through to the cross that then there is that last part of the pattern. There is that exaltation. There He is, as Paul said, the Son of God in power and glory. Back where He begins. But now I want to show you this. How does Paul in Philippians 2 apply this to the church? This doctrine is to affect the way we think. This doctrine is the way, it's supposed to affect the way we think about the other people in this room. How we relate to them. Watch this. Look at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Listen now. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but here it is, in humility count others in the congregation, in the church, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. His mind was everything I just read. It was not self-exalting. It was self-humbling. It was not building up self. It was emptying self. For what? For the good of others. I mean, putting their eternal interests, and by their, he means the church, the people of God, putting their interests even above his own. Being obedient of God, to God even through the point of the cross, which was not for his own sins, <laughs> but for the sins of his people. You know, this should breed within us. Should it not? Should this doctrine that the Son of God became a man breed within the people of God deep humility? That you are no better than anyone else in this room. You are no more significant than anyone else in this room. And that you should not live your whole life just for your own interests. Isn't that what he says? Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Oh, how much of our life is consumed with our own interests. Now, I'm not saying that those aren't important. We have to take care of our own business. We have to take care of things. But if your whole life is just about you 
and your interests. And friends, you're not living out the mind of Christ. A truly Christ-like congregation then is a congregation of humble service to others, looking around for the needs of others, praying for others, encouraging others. Frankly, as John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, he said, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Oh, friend, listen, I love this. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And it doesn't matter what their personality is or their, their particular interests or their particular hobbies or station in life or age in life. It's irrelevant because Jesus laid down His life for all of them. <laughs> you know, Jesus taught us many things. This is one of them, right? He said in... Uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 42 and 45, really correcting his apostles who were arguing, well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? I want to sit next to Jesus' right hand, etc. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, you see. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, reasons Jesus, came not to uh, be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Consider your ways, Christian. Borrowing a phrase from the prophet Haggai, we'll look at tonight in our Bible study. Consider your ways. Consider your relationships in the church. Consider your service to the body of Christ and to those who are a part of it. Consider your life. Is your life resembling that of Jesus Christ? We are followers of Christ. And to circle it back to the obedience factor, remember this? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples and teach them to obey me. And Jesus, through me and in my imperfect way this morning, just did that to all of us, didn't he? This is how you obey me. You humble yourself in humble service before God, yes, and for the good of his people. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word, how clear it is. And yet how challenging we know. We pray for Christ's likeness as we know only your spirit by the word can produce that within us. And we ask that he would in this area. In the name of Jesus we pray it. Amen.